Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. And Alan Delmonte is here alongside David Ord, the editor of the Sporting Life. Um, good morning to you both. David, it's been a, an interesting week on the track, perhaps an even more interesting one off it. Yeah, it's been a typical racing week, hasn't it? We've plenty of good action, but away from the race course, dear me, what a story began developing and covered expertly. I mean, it's a, a week of landmarks for your good self. The 200 look on Sunday, the 500 Nick Luck Daily podcast. It's been a fantastic series covering this. The BHA fell into back their own proposal to reduce the fixture list by 300 races. And what's happened... After that, the snowballing beyond there has just been fantastic to follow, fascinating to follow, but so frustrating and worrying for the future of the sport. Uh, Alan, it must be so, so strange in your position as, as racing's well, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, I'm, I'm not sure which. <laughs> Chancellor, probably, you prefer. Well, it's very kind of you. I'll yeah. go for Chancellor, shall yeah. we? Yeah, uh, but to see, to see your racing political poly, uh, colleagues taking chunks out of each other, uh, to what extent does that worry you? Well, it, it, I think as others have said this week, it's, a, it's reflective of how difficult it is to make um, relatively small changes. You're talking about maybe fewer than 300 races out of 10,500 races mm. that we run. Um, yeah, it's not, I mean, I get it's very entertaining for listeners of your podcast and readers of the Racing Post. It's a bit more stressful, I suspect, for, for those who are uh, having to live it every day. And so is there a part of it where you think, well, hang on a minute, these are discussions that are part of the warp and weft of the sport. These take place every year. There's always going to be tensions. Should they be played out in, in the public gaze? Well, this, this particular issue is quite an interesting one because it, it, just, it did appear, I think, on the Racing Post front page one day um, and as, as a proposal that was in, um, in discussion to get, to get rid of some races. But there are lots of proposals and lots of things that get discussed from time to time that never see the light of day. But this one seemed to have a, a life that lasted really two, two and a half months before it actually ended um, in, in not happening. Mm. So it, as a little um, episode in reflecting of what sometimes takes off as a story and what isn't a story, that this, this was a good one. Well, shall we drill down as, as to exactly why this proposal has been moved to one side for a moment? This is the, the statement that was made by, by Julie Harrington, the chief executive of the British Horse Racing Authority earlier, earlier in the week. There, there was a meeting of the executive committee. It was Julie as, as one member of that, and the other two members of the tripartite executive uh, committee were, were Charlie Liverton and, and David Armstrong, representing the Thoroughbred Group and the Racecourse Association, respectively. And, and Julie Harrington, who, who actively uh, voted against the proposal, the BHA were quite keen to stress she didn't abstain. She took an active role in this as well. It wasn't a, it wasn't a passive role. The BHA retains the view it's critical we take steps as a sport to deliver a racing product 
both competitive and compelling. The use of a data-driven race programme, which is suitably tailored to the population of horses in training, will be central to this. Following ongoing discussions with the sports member bodies, we believe the best way to achieve this will be through collaboration on a unified industry strategy, rather than making tactical tweaks to the race programme, which have the side effect of causing significant division amongst the sport's various members. The sports leaders have recently announced that work will now begin on a unified strategy with fixtures and the race programme at its core. Meanwhile, the size of the 2023 race programme will remain under review with the capacity for decisions to be made later in the year based on ongoing industry discussions and our ongoing monitoring of the horse population. Just quickly to you, Alan, you're pretty well aware of the dates by which fixtures have to be set in order for race courses to uh, sort their budgets out. You know, how late can you actually leave it before you start making changes to the 2023 fixture list? Well, my understanding from that statement is that we're not talking about fixture numbers. We're talking about races within the fixtures. So Mm -hmm. the question of the race programme and how soon before a a race meeting you can start to populate that with races, I think, is a a different question. But wouldn't that be tactical tweaking rather than wholesale change? Yeah, um, well, I think it depends... If, if you start to take races out of the race programme, I think as others have said on uh, this week, does that signal a bigger change to the way that you go about running the race programme? Or do you look at these little 300 races or a few races here and there as being small, isolated things? Are we moving to an environment where we're actually actively saying there's a much more dynamic way of setting the race programme? Are we taking more races out before, before the fixture, fixture programme is published and then putting them in? These are much bigger questions than just whether you take out 300 races at at the start. Okay, let's talk to Paul Johnson, who's the chief executive of the National Trainers Federation and has been one of the most uh, vocal proponents of this proposal that has now hit the buffers because the BHA chose to vote against the proposal that itself had had put forward. Morning, Paul. Morning, Nick. What's happened this week? Why, Why is Julie Harrington... Performed this U-turn. Um, well, I can't tell you why she's performed the U-turn, um, and that the BHA have taken the position they have. Um, that would really, I think, the, the statement from the BHA doesn't really go on to explain that fully effectively, uh, other than presumably she's looking to prioritise seemingly a strategy beyond this and actually de- developing a wider strategy rather than reacting right now to a problem that's right in front of us. And that, that's obviously why we, we disagree with that position, because we, we see that there's a problem right here, right now, that needs to be dealt with, and, um, and it's not being dealt with. Uh, so the, the narrative that's emerged this week, really, is that this is something that has been knocked up on the back of an envelope and, and that just isn't supported by the requisite data and context to, to make policy. Is that something that you recognise or not? No, not at all. I, I don't recognise that at all. What we've seen in the in the process is uh, that the data has been provided. The levy board helpfully have taken part in discussions and have advised us what the financial impact for levy-wise would be of reducing volume. And um, it, looking at 250 races, for example, we know that that would cost us, or we the forecast that that would cost us £736,000 in levy with a reduction of £190,000 for every 10% of volume that gets substituted back into other races. So we know, we know where we're going on, on this stuff. There's some stuff that you can't uh, forecast and you can't predict with data. So we don't know what the, the, the other side of the equation would be, if you like, whereby 
the cost of actually losing people's interest in the sport. But it, what we do know is that you don't need to lose many people's interest in the sport before you outweigh any, any losses you make by reducing volume to try and have a, a product that's appropriate to the number of horses you've got to service it. Okay, I'm just going to talk to um, Alan and, and then we'll bring in Charlie Parker, who's the, the chairman of the Thoroughbred Group. Uh, Alan, your work with, with Paul and your work with the BHA on this, from your point of view, can you envisage a situation whereby you strategically prune races from the programme and the sport in the medium term becomes <coughs> better off? This is really at the heart of this issue and it's a very difficult thing to prove. So it, it's very easy to look at the betting data and say, how much did, does every race generate? Mm -hmm. And you take races out, and your starting point is that race isn't there, so you don't get that income. And that's just not levy, that's media rights, and all of the associated income associated with a race. Then you start to work through what the benefits are, as in horses moving into different races, so field sizes go up elsewhere, punters moving their betting from that race to other races, which starts to build back in your lost income. But it's quite difficult, however you do it, to come to a view other than that in the short term, you lose money. The really difficult question, which is at the heart of this is, how do you demonstrate that there is, a, a, at best, a, a net no effect because of all the other benefits that come through to the sport? And that seems to me to be the thing that is missing in these arguments about cutting, that there are clearly a lot of people in the sport who are nervous about it, whether, whether they're nervous about it for the interest of the sport or they're looking at their own balance sheet, mm -hmm. you know, that's a different question, but for whatever reason, they're nervous about reductions because it costs money. So there's got to be some <coughs> better thinking, more convincing thinking about how you make a positive case for less being more. And as Paul has said, that's not, that's not going to be found from a spreadsheet, not exclusively. Um, so you, you've, you've really got two choices. You, you've either got to say, we've made a positive case and everyone agrees with it, or we haven't made a positive case that everyone agrees with, but the majority are of the view that we're going to do it anyway, and the sport agrees to do it. So, as I welcome in Charlie Parker, who's the, the chairman of the Thoroughbred Group and he's the president of the Racehorse Owners Association. Um, Charlie, morning. Morning. Um, ha hasn't a positive case been made here? What is a, what is a better case for, for, for the reduction in, in races, do you think? Well, I don't, I don't think a case has been made. Um, I think we're faced with um, unprecedented rises in cost of living. We're faced with a Gambling Act review and a white paper that um, will be issued shortly. Um, we're seeing online betting turnover in April significantly down year on year. And um, we are in a situation where we have more horses in training today than we've had five years ago. Um, the sport is facing a number of serious challenges and it was the view of the BHA board back in April um, that a much more strategic look at programme book, at the fixture list, at the number of races needs to be conducted to, to, to make some proper radical action both short term and, and medium term. I think th the other point to make is that there are other factors involved here. Um, National Hunt Racing has seen four abandonments in 2022 compared with an average over the last five years of probably 44. So we've had, we've had weather conditions that have, have made, meant more races. 
We've had uh, ground conditions that are probably not necessarily suitable for the majority of the national hunt stallions. So that has produced field size issues, which have got no relevance to, say, the all-weather racing or, or, or turf flat racing. Um, and I, th- I think that, the, that we need to look at all of the data in all of the areas and, and, and make a plan and make a strategy that will suit us for the next five, ten years. Okay, let me go back to, to, to Paul Johnson. Paul, the, the charge there effectively is that, that not enough data has been looked at. Not enough of these factors that Charlie was mentioning there have been taken into account. Well, how would you respond to that? Well, clearly I don't agree. The, um, I don't agree or recognise the numbers that Charlie's talked about either, about more horses being in training. Um, there are 5% fewer horses than there were in 2019 at the moment, um, and we're running 7% more races. Uh, there, there are factors that are involved in field sizes all of the time, such as weather and um, going, etc. But the fundamental issue here is that we're running far too much product for the number of horses we've got available to service it. As a result of that, I'll provide you with some data, which is that the field size to the end of May this year has been 8.23, which is a lower number than it's ever been since we've got data on this. The lowest number before that was 8.5. So we're seeing a fundamental change in the sport and we're watching that happen without doing anything about it so yes there's plenty of data and um, that's been looked at by the fixture funding group and that's why the recommendations were were initially reached and um, we now find ourselves in a cycle of saying we need to see more data we can spend a lot of time saying that we've looked at the data and it is not looking very good That is uh, Equine Productions in a decade and their creative director and founder, Nathan Horrocks, joins me now. Um, Nathan, you are now based in California yes. and are here for Royal Ascot and have very kindly come to see me today. You look back on that as a body of work. You, you must feel a, a sense of pride. We did, well, well, all of us do. Yeah, you know, um, when we started this journey yeah, 10 years ago, uh, Sam Fleet and, and Dave James, my two business partners, you know, we were... Um, unsure how the, the you know the sport would receive us and um you know some people were you know were a little anxious of, of how we were actually going to you know go about doing all this innovative um filmmaking and um because 12 years ago um you know the internet was was, was bought you know was born and in youtube and facebook was uh, was a medium that we could actually uh, you know share this uh, share this content and racing you know uh, embraced us as a, as a company to uh, use all this innovative uh, filmmaking and um and the journey's been brilliant. You know, we've been great. It's been great to work on things like, you know, the Dittori, um uh, film that's just recently been been launched, and uh, but also our own uh, films that we've uh, created and uh, that have been received really well and, and won awards. So it's um, it's been a great journey, and uh, we'll have to continue go- going down this path. Now you you're pretty much complete, aren't you, with with horsepower? We are. The, the yes, we are. Yeah, it's a documentary series that we've been uh, working on for the last eighteen months. Uh, uh, following Andrew Baldin and his team at Kingsclear, um, um, you know, th- through a season, and um, we're really excited about this. Uh, we, me as a, as a as a sports fan, um, I'm really excited about this coming out. We, um, you know, we can't uh, we we haven't announced uh, the date of when, it, when it's coming out. Yeah, release. But you're there. You're nearly there. We're nearly there, and, and it's going to be on a major platform. But um, what's been great you about this? You tell me which major platform. I'm not allowed to tell you <laughs> yet, which is really annoying. I'm, so, you know, which has been really frustrating for us. These things aren't easy to make. They're very expensive to make, 
and they're not easy to get get through uh, through the channels. I mean, everyone keeps thinking there's this myth that uh, you know these major platforms are just throwing money at sports documentaries. They're not. They have to be made first, then you sell them. It happened with Formula well, One, with Drive to Survive, you know, and that's been a huge success. But it had to be made first before Netflix then took it on board. It may or may not be Netflix. It may or may or not whatever. be Netflix. But yeah. I mean, you say you say it's a, a major platform. Um, I say this is the first major platform that you're going to see a glimpse of horsepower. Going into Ascot, there is a sense of dread every morning. This is something we've been anticipating for so long. You just don't want any last-minute pitches. Royal Ascot before it starts. It's always a tense time. Everyone's neurotic. Nobody's in a good mood. I'm pretty stressed out, and Andrew is more stressed out. It wouldn't take very much to get on edge and wound up. There was one with our work. She set off too close to the pair in front of them. The horse just couldn't get going. We ended up right up their bums, and it was a complete waste of time. How did we f that up? How many times have you done it, for God's sake? Obviously, I was angry it happened, and he was angry it happened, and we don't swear at each other very often. There's no time for mistakes. It was meant to be her last gallop. Consequently, we had to work the filly again. Those little things that can go wrong right at the last minute are a huge blow. Andrew Balding turning the air blue in horsepower. A few um, beeps there. <laughs> well, it's made me want to watch, that's for sure. It's a proper hook, that, isn't it? I can't yeah. wait for it now. Um, how long were you there at, at Kingsclear filming? Well, I mean, it's it's all, this is all down to uh, my business partner Dave James, uh -huh. you know, our CEO, and, and and John Max, who's one of the producers. We've been working with Lawton Entertainment, who have famed from uh, working with on Rooney and uh, and the uh, Supersonic Oasis documentary. Um, and thankfully, they helped us get the money to make this. And uh, if it wasn't for Andrew Baldin and Annalisa um, giving us the access, I mean, we've been working on this thing for you know, eighteen months, and uh, it's been um, it it. it What's been enjoyable about this is finally we can actually show the behind the scenes what goes on in a racing yard in that that year leading up to uh, Royal Ascot and the access and the human stories that we're telling uh, I, I think are going to be more compelling to, 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 to drag in a new audience and, and that's what I'm really excited about. You live in California. Um, are, you call, are you calling this fly on the wall or are you calling this scripted reality? Well, this is this is this is pretty much. Uh, are you much setting up scenarios and letting them go? No, or? I mean these these are scenarios that are that are happening. You know, we just got to make sure we're in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, to make sure that we see these scenarios. And this is the trouble with our sport. We've just mentioned it. There's so much racing, and there's you know it's hard to follow these storylines sometimes. So what's what's great about this is we we, we were able to get there and, and and film this stuff. We were having a chat about this in the in the press room at Epsom last week and talking about making documentaries for the sport and making you know, the, the whole are we going to have another drive to survive and and whatnot and is it going to be racing and who's going to win the contract and where's it going to appear and we were sort of kicking the idea around as to can you really make a good racing show unless you show the bad bits or the not bad but the bits like that 
the truth of it. Yeah. The behind the scenes. Absolutely. The... You've got you've got to show that sort of stuff, Nick, because otherwise we're just lying to ourselves, aren't we, Dave? Because you know. Otherwise, it's just an infomercial. Well, exactly. It's all yeah, that, yeah, and it's wishy washy, and people don't don't believe in us. Then you know what I mean? Because we've got to show what goes on, and we've got to open our doors and show that you know the the, the wider world what our sport is about. You know, we've I've, I have these conversations all the time outside our bubble. You know, when I meet somebody outside of racing and, and they have no uh, no clue what our sport is about, when I explain the stuff that goes on and show them this type of type, type of content, you know, they're they're intrigued then and they ask the, they ask these these questions that that we don't ask. And um, and I think it's important that we we show everything in I, the right way. I can be reading a book, must be about 30 years ago, Horse Sweat and Tears, Simon mm. Barnes, about a year in the John Dunlop stable, yes. and it was a big part of me getting hooked, just understanding what was going on behind the scenes, and a documentary like this has got such potential to reach out to that different audience to hopefully attract new people to the sport. And you remember some of the supporting cast in that book, there were some quite interesting names there. In were there were some great names so in there. Simon Chrisford, I think, Simon was, Chris he, was he there? Yeah. I've got a physio, there was a swear word around a physio, the horse was one of the first things I remember in the book, but Simon Chrisford was there, mm. it, was a, it was a fantastic book, I mean, there's not been anything like it since, has there? It was so... If you felt like you were at the heart of the, the state, even though you weren't, it was written a year afterwards and all the event, you knew what had happened, but it was just, it, it just really helped sort of raise my interest in the sport and just gave a little glimpse as to what was going on behind the scenes because we don't get to see it. If we're not b born into the sport, we, we don't get to see these things. And one such way of engaging an audience is by getting your audience as close to the horses as you possibly can. And that's exactly what National Racehorse did, uh, Week did last year, the, the first uh, edition of it. And it's back for a, a second bite of the cherry. Really pleased to welcome Gabby Whitfield, the acting head of communications from uh, Great British Racing, to the show. Morning, Gabby. Good morning, Nick. Um, lovely to have you with us today. National Racehorse Week was a, a huge success last year but I'm guessing this year you've got a little bit more scope given that the country is now completely opened up. Yeah we can take all those learnings from from last year and really build on those for this year. I mean as you said last year was uh, it was an incredible success and we're gonna uh, the aim is to make this a annual platform for the sport a moment in time every single year where the industry comes together throws open its doors to the general public and showcases the passion of the people behind the scenes and the love and the care that racehorses receive 24-7. So lots of learnings from last year, big ambitions um, for this year. The dates are the 10th to the 18th of September, going to be bookended by Epsom Moulton Open Weekends and the Henry Cecil Open Weekends as well. And we're looking at 11,000 places, more than we hope, to be offered to the general public to come behind the scenes of, of racing. So the other thing we're doing this year, we're going to showcase the whole life of the thoroughbred as well. So we're having studs involved and we're having aftercare and retraining centres involved as well. So to the general public, they're able to come and see all elements of, of a thoroughbred's life, which is it's just incredibly important, that connection to the general public, both those in racing and those completely new to racing, is just so important. It's a brilliant segue from exactly what you were just talking about um, a minute ago. So this year, we want to be able to connect even more with the non-racing public. Um, so we've got big ambitions around 40% of those people that will come along will be either occasional social goers or will have never been to a race in their life. 
Gabby, thanks so much for talking to me this morning. All the very best with it. Thank you very much. Gabby Whitfield, the Acting Head of Communications for Great British Racing, talking about uh, National Racehorse Week. And you can um, get more interest, uh, uh, more information on National Racehorse Week by emailing lstanley at greatbritishracing.com. If you're a trainer or a stud um, then and, and want to get involved, lstanley at greatbritishracing.com. And switching our focus back to um, America again now and to New York and the final leg of the Triple Crown. This, of course, featured the reappearance after skipping the Preakness of the shock Kentucky Derby winner, Rich Strike. Let's how, uh, see how he and his opponents fared uh, last night in the company of caller Larry Colmas. They're off in the Belmont Stakes and the Philly Nest stumbled coming out of the gate and We the People goes out to the early lead. Skippy Longstocking is away running in second. Golden Glider came out third. Barber Road much closer to the pace today and Nest is being sent through an opening on the inside after that early stumble. Then Creative Minister the Kentucky Derby winners near the back of the pack early. Rich Strike is last now and Bo Donegal has gone by him. So it's We the People leading the way through a 23.99 opening quarter mile. It's a decent pace. He's on top by a length and a half. Skippy Longstocking on the outside second. Nest has made her way up into third as they make their way to the backstretch here. And then it's a three-wide run for Golden Glider. Mo Donegal between horses. Creative Minister down on the inside. Barber Road, who was closer, has been taken back to second last. And Sonny Leone and Rich Strike are going to have to come from dead last here. They're trailing the field after a 48.49 half mile. So up the back stretch in the Belmont. We the people in Flavian Pratt. Three quarters of a length ahead of Skippy Longstocking, who continues to stick with his front runner up the back stretch. Then Golden Glider, Nest, Modonigal to the outside. Creative Minister is next. Then Barber Road. He's got five and a half to make up. Ridge Strike continues to race at the back of the pack. The Kentucky Derby winner is last up the back stretch. Three quarters up in one thirteen point two three seconds. They race for the far turn. We the people has been in front all the way so far. The lead is three quarters of a length over Skippy Longstocking. And then it's Nest on the inside in third. She's just in behind the leader. O'Donagall is fourth on the outside. Meanwhile, Rich Strike is still last, and he's being ridden to go now by Sonny Leone at the back of the pack. Around the far turn, we the people trying to take him every step of the way. Skippy Longstocking has been second throughout. Nest is third, just in behind them. The filly is just in behind the front-running pair, and Mo Donegal is moving on the outside. Rich Strike is out of last, but he's got a lot of work to do. Skippy Longstocking has come up to the neck of We the People, and Mo Donegal comes charging up on the outside, and they're into the stretch, and Mo Donegal has taken the lead as they arrive at the final furlong. Nest has moved up into second, then We the People, and Skippy Longstocking. It is going to be Mike Rapoli 1-2. Mo Donegal and Nest, Mo Donegal and Arad Ortiz have won the Belmont Stakes. Nest was second, Skippy Longstocking was third, We the People was fourth, Rich Strike ended up sixth. The final time was 228.28 seconds. Celebrate Mike Rapoli. I'm always going to be Mike from Queens, and this is New York's biggest race. And to win it here with my family, friends, 70 people, you know, out of a son of Uncle Mo. 
trained by Todd Fletcher, my great friend, and I ride who have had success, and Jerry Crawford and Donegal Racing. This is going to be the biggest winning circle in the history of sports. But that's what makes it great, sharing it with your friends and family, right? Success is best when shared. Success is best when shared. i got to get a word from your little one over here. What do you think of that, what are you? How happy are you? How happy yes. are you? Yes. Very happy. Yeah. Well, scenes of uh, unfettered jubilation after the Belmonts takes a 1-2 for owner Mike Rapoli, who'd bought an interest in this horse earlier in the season after the Wood Memorial. He's by a stallion that Mike Rapoli himself raced, one of his first good horses, Uncle Mo, who's gone on to be a real breed shaper at Coolmore in Kentucky. And this horse won impressively. That Wood Memorial from Aqueduct earlier in the season working out really well, the race in which he beat the Preakness winner early voting and for Rapoli as he said I'm still the boy from Queens and on Long Island it was his day yesterday with the first and the second the Philly Nest running a terrific race the Kentucky Oaks runner-up in second no show from the Kentucky Derby winner Rich Strike and back to the drawing board for him but really Nathan uh, Rich Strike's had his day for a 30 grand claimer to win the Kentucky Derby that was a story in itself and you're now looking at horses who can genuinely make an impact for the remainder of the season. Yeah, I mean, what's exciting about this season is, like you said, there's some very, very talented horses finishing the first few, few there. And, um, you know, um, what I'm, I'm excited about as well is the fact that uh, some of these horses are, are coming to our, you know, yeah. our flagship meeting next week. You know, it's, um, it's great. And, you know, Irad's going to be making the, uh, making the journey over and I'm um, looking forward to seeing him uh, taking on our guys. Yeah, it's been an interesting feature, hasn't it, Dave, of the way Wesley Ward has approached Asker over the last few years. Yes, he's used Dottori a lot, and yes, he's used Velasquez quite a bit, but he's quite often brought over... I mean, Irad Ortiz is very well established. He's a multiple Eclipse award-winning jockey, but he's very often brought over names that the British public might not be familiar with. Yeah, he has. He's liked a bit of local knowledge with them, hasn't he, in terms of the horses rather mm. than the, the tracks. And it's, I think it adds another dimension, the fact that he's here. We've got the, the Australian jockey. I mean, Jamie Kai going over potentially because you might mm. pick up a ride on the Saturday. What a story that is. It, it all adds to... The magic of Royal Ascot, doesn't it? The international raiders bring so much, but so do the connections, the trainers and the jockeys. And Yeah, I can't wait to see him in action next week. I don't think I've, I, I can ever remember, apart perhaps from the year that Black Caviar came, I d can't remember a Royal Ascot which has been so enlivened by the international participation. I completely agree. It's been, that has been the buzz throughout the build-up, hasn't it? And I, I mean, I always think that Black Caviar being here brought that performance out of... Frankel, because they were a bit, they had to share the spotlight with him <laughs> in, in, in the build-up. 2012, yeah. Yeah, there you are, follow that in the Queen Anne, just think, follow that. And it, but what a, what a build-up to Ireland Scott that was. And this year there has genuinely been a buzz around these horses. It's been fantastic. And we could have, um, well, we could have a Frankel-esque performance from Baid in the opening race again. The parallels are quite striking. Well, it's exciting. I mean, Jim Crowley's absolutely jumping for joy riding this horse, isn't he? I mean, it was such an impressive win last time. And, you know, he's... Um, He's done. He's, he's he's done great. You know, landing that uh, landing that ride. You know, seven to two on. Shouldn't shouldn't he be tens on? Shouldn't he be one to ten? This horse. I mean, he's basically got to do what he did in the lockings again. He's won the Queen Anne. He's got to canter down and yeah, canter back. It, it, it's the same he? field. I mean, th I think the exciting thing with with Baid is what happens next. We've got about an hour later. Caribus runs in the St James's Palace, and he might be lying in wait if they go to the Sussex. If he goes to ten furlongs in the Judmont, that's been mooted. Maybe Desert Crowns. Like anyway, it's not a Queen Anne that gets you excited, but Bayed is a horse that gets you excited. Ten seventeen. We must have the final decks for the the Queen Anne. We, it just come just coming through seven field of seven. Um, so six rivals for Bayed. The second favourite was Real World, the horse who, as you said, to finish second in the 
in the lock inch. I mean, we know he liked Ascot. We know Accidental Agent liked Ascot. They're two pluses, but so does Baid. We saw that on Champions Day. So, yeah, I, I, I hope he wins and wins well. He's a really important horse for Shadwell as well, isn't he? The new Shadwell, the slim down. What a prospect he is retiring to stud, presumably at the end of the season for them. He might be a, a big player for them moving forward. Looking forward to welcoming Australian training legend, well, New Zealand-born Chris Waller, uh, to the show in a little while. But uh, I'm joined once again by Dave Ord, editor of The Sporting Life, and Nathan Horrocks, uh, founder of Equine Productions. And alongside them is Michael Tini, who's been working with us here on Racing TV for the last few weeks as a graduate of the inaugural Racing Media Academy. Michael, great to see you. Great to see you, Nick. And how have you, how have you enjoyed it? It's been amazing, yeah. I mean, I've been to the Derby, I've been to the Yorks. And um, I've sort of learned everything that I feel like I need to learn when I've been there. And everybody's been so kind. It's been, it's been amazing, yeah. So the Racing Media Academy was, was founded by Josh Appiaffi, and he was trying to draw as many younger people as possible from you know, all corners of the country who had an interest in, in the sport and, 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 and joining, joining us in the, in the racing media. How did you find out about it? How did you get into it? Well, I, I saw it on racing TV, and um, it was just like randomly watching the races, and... Um, and I thought that's sort of interesting, that could be appealing to me, you know. It's, um, there's nothing really in Newcastle for us, and there's no, there's no sort of any way of getting into it or anything like that. You've got the Gosforth Park racetrack, but um, that's really it, you know. But um, So I just thought, first thing that i actually seen that was appealing, I applied for it, and um, I got an interview, and then, um, yeah, the, 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 the brung is on, the brung is on board, and um, we went to, the, to Newmarket for a week to um, do, like, a crash course sort of mm -hmm. thing. We got, like given access to presenters and stuff to come done talks and things and um yeah we just we learned a lot even in just that first week we've done a lot and um and then i got given this sort of opportunity at racing tv and um i'm here for for five weeks and um this is me coming up to the third week and um it's just been amazing it's been it's been brilliant to get into and um i just it's just made us want to do it even more i feel like there's not enough being spoken about the the sort of ways that racing can include mm. wider audiences and obviously we have conversations and stuff before it's, it seems to be a sort of they're the, the trying not to get people at the race course sort of thing like it's like sort of pushing things away i feel and um, i feel like we should be more trying to get them involved and, mm. and instead of that you know but um yeah it's been it's been amazing where did your interest in racing spark up initially well um my granddad watched it he used to watch it and um we're sort of whenever allowed in the room when he used to watch it you know um i never really <laughs> understood why but um it was just because um he, he didn't excited. he didn't let you allow no we weren't room. i think he must have thought well bad luck you know or something like that but um we used, we used to hear him because he, he used to get into it you know he used to really get excited you'd hear him rooting one home yeah yeah <laughs> and i never really understood why but then um I started getting into it really, I was sort of late getting into it, it was sort of the sprinter sacra times mm -hmm. and, and pushing in Altio and I just, I just when I watched Altio and sprinter sacra I, I loved it and then I got from the jumps into the flat and now I just, I just love everything, like everything. I'm, I'm wondering Nathan whether this is actually the secret. We should tell people not to watch. It's secret. It's behind closed doors, and that will make them more interested in the sport. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, look. You know, the great thing about this this whole journey that all, all these uh, all these rec recruits have, have, have been on is is the fact that you know Josh Appiaffi, a good good mate of mine, has been driving this thing for a while and, and was able to bring all these um, you know all these uh, channels together to, mm. to, to to make these placements uh, available for you know for everyone and. Um, 
and what's great is, is you know it's another way of somebody getting into our sport. And two two graduates with you, yeah. are Equine Productions. Yeah, two graduates are going to be with us, and um, you know ra uh, Racing TV, uh, Sky, um, Racing Post, uh, you know so, and um, ITV are also involved as well. So it's it's great that you know that some of us can actually get on in this sport and um, <laughs> and, and make these opportunities available for everybody. Anyone? There isn't, no. no, no. Well, the door okay. is open. I've got to say, the door is open. I mean, we always find with work experience, we get bombarded. People want to get in football. Mm. A hundred CVs, got they're all football. Too. When you see horse races, it's absolutely fantastic. It's brilliant. And my, like, so exactly the same, my dad shouting, I'm seeing Pigeon and Night Nurse in the front. I was allowed in the front room. I don't know if that's what he did wrong. <laughs> but it was exactly the same hook, the family hook yeah. into race. I yeah. wasn't born into the sport. Yeah. I was, it was that family link. Isn't it interesting how many people say they have been... Um, They've got into the sport through their grandparents, mm. and there's a gen. There you feel there was like a whole generation skipped. Yeah. Can you that now turn this on its head and convince the generation between your grandparents and you to, to get in involved and share your passion? Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, I, I mean honestly, I, the, the, I thought the the Anergamian versus Shishkin should have been broadcasted like it was the Champions League final. You know, I feel like that was the pinnacle of, of sport. You know. And I just don't feel like it. I was telling people I'm giving everybody the ratings. I'm giving every oh this you're gonna watch this race this weekend, and people are just looking as if I'm as if I'm crazy. I'm gonna play one point round. I'm like I'm it's mind boggling, you know. I mean, I recently saw an interview with Aidan O'Brien, and, and he and he was explaining how how it makes people feel, the emotions in it and stuff. I mean, it's just the ups and downs, it, and you don't that's without even having a bet, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. if you if you get if you sort of involved in a horse. Emotionally, and you like a horse, you you follow the story from the horse from from birth because you can actually do that. You know, I mean, especially with a flat race, and you can see you've got champions, and then you've got sons and daughters of champions. If you you can follow these horses from birth, and watch them watch them sort of grow up, and then and then watch them on the racetrack and watch them perform, and it's I, I feel as if it's just it's really exciting. It's really emo you can get really emotionally attached to it, and um, I feel like instead of sort of being talking about, I mean. You, which you have to do is get the it's sort of the doom and gloom in it. We need to sort of get out there and try and get these people to the race course and show people that, that it is really exciting. The, it, what I'm really interested in there is the fact that it seems to me that from a, a base of limited knowledge of the sport, what's really attracted you about it is its depth, it is, is, is the complexity of it, that that's what's really stimulated you. Yeah, it's not the, just the, the surface. Yeah, that's it. It's the, it's the stories. I mean, and there's, there's content and stories and everything from, if you, if you go, like I was saying before, from the breeding, I feel like that excites us, you know I mean? I like the breeding. You see, like I was saying, this, the sons and daughters of champions and you watch them come through. And um, I mean, going two-year-olds and three-year-olds, and obviously we're, we're, there's a bit more longevity in the horses with the, the national hunt, and because you see them over season after season. But there's no reason like you can't follow the horses' sons and daughters again, you know. And, and then you've still got so even if they do get retired as a three-year-old, you'll you'll have another one coming around the next year, and you'll have another one the year after. I feel like there's just constantly stories that can be told, and um, there's there's sort of not enough of that. We need to get there's there's yards there's that we can go into. I mean. You, you see a lot. Of, there's, there's a lot of negativity. Not a lot of like the, the, the sitting on dead horses and things like that. Whereas like I was at Dallin Hall Stud at Godolphin, and mm -hmm. it was it was like a house. It was like somebody's home. The outside was like somebody's home. It was immaculately clean. It was beautiful. The horses were really like it was. It's sort of like a hotel, like a five star hotel for horses, you know. And it's just like it's not the not. It's not sort of. Negative. It's not. It's not bad. The horses aren't trapped bad. The horses are really well looked after, and and this should be out there. You know. I mean, it shouldn't be. 
I mean, a lot of the people that are sort of ringing up and, and complaining, they'll probably walk past the homeless person living on the on the, on the street, and and then they're, con they're, they're sort of concerned about the equine welfare, which is there's a thing, it obviously, and it should be, but um, I think that they ignore society, and then they're looking for things to sort of bully kind of thing, you know, and something to be negative about, and, and obviously when you see these images and stuff, that that can be sort of perceived, well, it will be perceived as negative, you know, but that's not what racing's about, it's, it's, it's positive. You're an incredibly passionate person, that's coming across so strongly, and racing's very lucky to, to have you and others coming through this first intake of the, of the Racing Media Academy. Um, have you ever found yourself being as passionate about anything else until now? Literally Newcastle, you know, like Newcastle United is yeah. the only that is the only other thing that I, I, I like football, but um, I only really follow Newcastle, you know. And when I grew up, I always wanted to be a footballer. I mean, I'm a bit too big in the waist to uh, be a footballer, but my parents used to always tell us that I could be one. I used to think that I could be one, but I was never going to be one. And then I sort of get, I went to school and stuff, and then I left school to try and because. I had to like try and get a job and stuff because I like I needed money and stuff. So um, when I left school, I was straight into work. I've worked at work since I left school, and um, and I just never really had a foot in doing something I actually want. And this has been the the, the foot in the door, if you like, you know. And um, so yeah, Newcastle football was the only thing. And if I feel like if you can get even that side involved in in horse racing, if you can try and mix the sports and get people from football. That could even help as well, you know. I mean, get get the football crowds at the at the at the match at the racing would be would be tremendous, you know. I feel like I mean, so any anything like that, just anyone would would, would need to get into these inner cities and, and things and 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 get people involved, really involved. What do you make of what's happening at Newcastle at the moment? Oh, it's, um, I love it to be honest with you. I mean, obviously you've got there's <laughs> a lot of like um, with, 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 with Saudi and stuff. You know, I mean, there's there's sort of a lot of negative press and things, which is I mean, it's understandable and stuff. But I can't I can't lie and say that I'm, I'm I'm I don't really care where the money comes from. Me to be fair, it's Newcastle. But um, yeah, I mean, um, when you're that passionate about a club, if, yeah, and we've had sort winning of is winning winning kind of everything else. Pales into insignificance. Yeah, I feel like we could draw a line at Putin, maybe, but like, <laughs> like I, I mean, the golfers didn't really, um, the golfers didn't really want to do that uh, when I saw a press conference a couple of um, years ago. But yeah, I feel like, um, yeah, as long as, long as we get the, the injection of cash, and I feel like that could be the same for racing, to be honest. But, uh, but that's maybe something we don't do enough of, is it? You like we just mentioning the crossover of sports, you know? Yeah. That's something we could we could definitely do more of, yeah. crossing crossing sports over, you know. What, sports the, the, washing generally, or well, no, not sports washing generally, <laughs> yeah. but just crossing, you know, you know, football crowds, you know, see, you know, the the way we advertise our our sports sometimes isn't isn't done in the in the best way either, you know. Like I think we could uh, we could do more of that crossing sports over, you know. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. You've been a massive asset to our <laughs> team here on Racing TV. D um, you d I, I, I know now you're, you don't have to think that carefully about what you say. Just be honest. Do you want to stay? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Brilliant. Fact, there's a, the lot I'll be kicking and screaming when I'm, when I'm leaving, to be honest. So. <laughs> yeah, really do. Perhaps never has Royal Ascot been so enlivened by international participation, at least not for a decade, at least not since Black Caviar ran and won famously in 2012. These are the declarations for the King's Stand Stakes on Tuesday. Amongst them are the United States star Golden Powell, the team captain for Wesley Ward's Royal Ascot squad, and Nature Strip, jointly the second highest rated horse anywhere on the planet, who comes from stall 10, 
and it's a first visit for many years to Royal Ascot for Australian, I think I'm safe to say legend, Chris Waller, 125, group or grade one races and counting, trainer of the great Winks and very elegant, joins me now in the studio. Chris, great to welcome you here. Absolute pleasure to be here, simple as that. And how are you enjoying this week, this preparation, this build up to Royal Ascot, which we've all been rather excited about for some time? Uh, it's been fantastic. We're staying with Charlie Hills at Lambourne and his team have done a great job to look after us and it's horse heaven, as what we would say, from Australia or New Zealand, where I'm actually from. Um, yeah, the horses come first, the cars stop when the horses cross the road. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the vast open spaces and you can just see it in the horses, they're relaxed. Uh, the staff relaxed, I'm relaxed. And uh, we've got a couple of nice horses that we've brought to entertain. And there'll be some who will be saying, come on, Walla, what took you so long? What took you so long? Well, it's, it's not an easy step. It's a, um, we're in awe of racing in Europe, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. And we watch it each Saturday night when the big races are on or the Ascot Week, um, the Derby, you name it. We watch it, we're glued to it. We know you need to bring a pretty good horse to, to beat the locals. And you've got this week so many horses from around the world coming to, to take on each other. So you need to bring the right horse because it's a long way to come because uh, you've got to go home as well. It mm. takes a while for the horses to acclimatise here uh, and then come back into an Australian winter when we've got big racing 52 weeks of the year. So you've got to bring the right horses and I think we've chosen well. Okay, I want to talk about Nature Strip and Home Affairs a little later on and you know, doubtless we'll talk a lot about, about Winks. But I want to dial it right the way back because I don't know much about where it all, all began for you in, in New Zealand. And you, you made the point there, I'm, I'm from New Zealand. How, how heavily do you wear the fact that you're a Kiwi in, oh, in Australia? Well, Australia's home. Australia's been, Australia's been so good to me and of my family are... Uh, for two Australian kids and obviously a New, a New Zealand wife, but the kids were born in Australia, so Australia's home for us. And do they think of themselves as Australian? Very much so. Do they? Yeah, very much so. So um, we're lucky to be where we are. Um, I had a good upbringing on a, a dairy farm in New Zealand. My parents used to go to the races um, once a month as, as race goers. My grandparents were hobby breeders just with a few horses. And the passion grew, and just like a couple of your guests before, um, I was a racing enthusiast and still am, and respect the heritage and the tradition before me. And um, yeah, it makes it a, a a very rewarding sport when you have that love for a for for an industry, love for the horse mm -hmm. or animals. And um, yeah, from the dairy farm, the animal side of things came in, and it's worked well. So you had that natural empathy as a as a stockman, someone who understood yeah. dealing well, with, with, with animals. It didn't appear that at the time, but when you when you look back on it now, it was just a great upbringing, um, working with animals and yeah, understanding when a, a cow's sick or a, an animal around the farm's not well, um, what you do to help it get back to to full health and 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 the things that go with it along the way, which are not always good on a farm, but. Um, yeah, it was it was a very special upbringing. Tell me a bit more about your about your parents. Um, well, my dad was a dairy farmer, yeah. mum was a school teacher. Um, yeah, very supportive. And I lived in a local town, probably similar to Lambourne, which is where we're staying at the moment. Uh, a small town called Foxton. There was a few few horse trainers, and I went to work with one of them. And he used to travel a few horses to Australia, so I got the chance to travel. And I thought, this is good, I've made it. I've, I've taken a horse to Australia and led it round as a strapper, as we call them, mm. back home. 
And I thought this was good, and you got to see those great trainers, see the great jockeys, and um, it was pretty special. And then eventually got the opportunity to train myself, and it's been a um, amazing ride from that point on. And it's actually been a, a pretty brisk ride as well. I mean, you only started training what in nineties. 96, 97, it's that sort of time. It's a while ago now. <laughs> yeah, but it, it really, it doesn't... Yeah, um, it, I was, I was um, looking at one of your um, previous shows and I think it was Tom Daskin said he'd mm-hmm. been training or in the industry for 30 years and I had a, got my fingers out and I actually realised I needed 30 fingers. I've been in the industry <laughs> for quite a while. So it, training, since, it, well, training in Australia since 2000, I was three years in New Zealand before that and um, we had our first Group 1 winner in 2008 and since then it's taken off what would you was was that the the point where everything turned having yeah, that group one when yeah. people recognizing you could do the job yeah yeah it was and i watch a few of the english trainers and and how there's the emerging trainers coming through and like this year you had a, a gentleman trainers the a guineas winner um george bowie yeah yeah and uh, it was just amazing and how much confidence that'll give him um it just that was the turning point for me. It was just having that inner confidence to know that you didn't need to change anymore what you were doing. You didn't have to try and work the horses harder. You just had to wait for the right horses to come along. When the right horses come along, they make everything look pretty easy. Some people are by nature just very ballsy people, aren't they? It doesn't strike me that you feel you are necessarily like that. Is you, were, you, were you a little bit more timid before you'd had, had yeah, that success? Yeah, very very timid, shy, um, not quite, didn't have the confidence probably to think that I could do the job at that elite level. We were training a lot of winners, but um, and you, you hear people talking, say, oh, he hasn't trained a good winner yet and, and things like that, so... Uh, you can't do anything about it. You can't change it. That's the beauty of horse racing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just You never know what to expect. And I say you never walk home from the races thinking you own it because you just don't know what's around the corner either. And it wasn't that long between training that first grade one winner, first group one winner, to being part of what very few people will ever get to experience, a phenomenon in, in Winks and that, and that story and that journey. Can you remember when when you first thought this was something more than just training a good racehorse? Um, her f- her second group one, we actually she took a while to win her first group one, and she was beaten more often than she she won uh, in the first part of her career. She won her first three starts, I think, from memory, and then she was she might have only won one of the next sort of five or six. She, we sent her up to Queensland, which is mm-hmm. which is winter time in the three year old year. And it's not regarded as our strongest racing, but it's still good racing. And we took her up there to, to win a Group 1 race. I guess it would be similar to, instead of taking on the English Derby or the English Oaks, you go elsewhere to another country. And that's what we did with her. Um, and then she had a break. She returned as a four-year-old and won a Group 1 race over a mile and almost fell that day. And yeah, that to me showed me that she had that bit of extra quality and... The winning sequence had begun then. It was her third or fourth win, and the next win was her Cox Plate, and that was when it really started to to get exciting. Um, yes, I think she she won every race for four years along those lines. The pressure started to build along the way, and it was an amazing ride, and she was a very good horse. You talk about the pressure, and you've spoken quite a lot about it. That sense of responsibility 
for a horse that everybody who was interested in horse racing in Australia and around the world felt they owned a part of. How did you deal with that? Uh, well, we, 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 yeah, it was interesting. We weren't obviously not trained to be media people. We're not trained to deal with these situations. But I guess it wasn't just a matter of it happening over a month. As I said, it was a four-year journey, and we learnt and felt our way through it. And we, we soon learned that she became um, everybody else's property, and we had the responsibility of informing everybody. And, uh, yeah, you name it, it was a... It was an amazing ride, and yeah, to get it right, like with when you're winning sort of 33 odd races, however many she won in a row, it's 33 trips to the races, it's 33 final gallops, it's 33 media mornings, it's 33 recoveries, it's it's just one after another. Yeah, and it was a huge relief when she retired. She won a final race, which was the Queen Elizabeth, and by that stage she was getting recognised from all fields not just sporting fields, but um, she was on the front and back pages of every newspaper in Australia and obviously capturing the imagination from around the world as well. That longevity is is remarkable. We've seen brilliantly talented racehorses, but to keep delivering metronomically yeah. and particularly for a, a mare as well. Yeah, well, how that happened was obviously she was a very sound horse. She never had any leg problems and... Um, we used to space her races quite well. Mm. She got an, used to, I think she used to race seven times, maybe eight times in a 12-month calendar. So it, it worked out pretty well in the end where a lot of her wins were that easy. She wasn't getting, wasn't really being tested. So she would recover better, she'd get confidence. And uh, yeah, it takes a very special horse to do it. And she made us look pretty good. And that, of course, prompted so much debate here, yeah. which yeah. which you I endured, enjoyed, I don't know. Uh, and the narrative was, well, she's beating up a load of rubbish yeah. in Australia. You wait till, why don't you bring her here and take on some good horses of ours and we'll, we'll, show, we'll show her what she needs to be made of. I fully respect that. And we, we would have loved to have brought her over for a lot of race like the Queen Anne. But as you can see on that, that shot, um, she was so well received in Australia and that was every race start, and we almost had a duty to, to keep doing that. Mm. Like it was, it was a big, big deal in Australia. She was on the back of Black Caviar, who did similar things, and that's that. That photo, that picture there, is a pretty good example of how racing in Australia is going at the moment. And and you could ask, okay, if we're coming to Ascot, why aren't we going to Dubai? Why aren't we going to Hong Kong? Why aren't we going to America? It was just there would always be something that we we couldn't quite fulfil when people want you to do things. So um, I would have loved it to come here, the owners and everyone the same, but there was that obligation to keep her going. And as I touched on about the other horses, bringing them over here is one thing. They're coming out, so our horses are in winter now, and we've put them on a plane. It took 40 hours door to door. They end up in it's summer here in, in England, and the sun's going down at like 11 o'clock at night just about and getting up at yeah. four in the morning like it's a big deal for horses especially mares and when she's expected to come back to Australia and do it all in reverse like there's going to be a problem it's they can't they they are athletes but they're animals and we we respected that part of it now well Neil Phillips opens his um his next bottle, which I think is a, what is that, an a Night Timber? Yes, classic keeper. English sparkling. Yes. 
um, it gives me an opportunity to divert you towards this book, which is out online and in all good bookstores, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And it is Think Like a Horse, Lessons in Life, Leadership and Empathy from an Unconventional Cowboy. And joining me now, all the way from Wyoming, is the author, Grant Gulliher. Um, Grant, good morning. Good morning. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the, to the show uh, from, your, from your home in, in Wyoming. We've been talking with one of the, the great racehorse trainers of the world, uh, New Zealand-born, Australian-based Chris Waller, talking about his upbringing on a dairy farm and his, his understanding of, of animals. You in this book are, are trying to communicate what exactly about man's relationship with the horse? <laughs> well... It's uh, it, it, the fact is that we learn to speak their language rather than than have them kind of learn ours. Like I feel like we have in the past. This is real how uh, the natural horsemanship really started, uh, I believe. Um, of course, it goes for generations, <laughs> thousands of years. But uh, in the last 50 years, probably 40 years that uh, you know, I've been involved in it. Uh, it. It really comes down to to listening and hearing what the horse is saying, and and uh, how they speak to each other, and just adapting that language. Uh, so we we are uh, communicating with them better than we have uh, traditionally. So so when you began your your life with horses, Grant, how? How were things done differently to how they are how they are now? What were the accepted norms then compared to to how they are today? And, and what have you tried to do in the in the intervening period? Yeah, it, just when I started out, you know, it was really what I call the old way of training, the old cowboy way, which was all about force, fear, intimidation, repetition, make them do it. It was a fight. It was a battle. We called it bronc busting, bronc fighting, uh, bronc peeling even was a term. And it, it really was true, you know, the, the horses got peeled up and, and sometimes the cowboys got peeled up. But, you know, the old way you would bring a wild horse in and, and into a round pen with a snubbing post in it and you'd rope the front feet and, and put, you know, and throw a loop around the snubbing post and and the horse would just bust himself down he would go and then you jump on his head and get a halter on him and you know of course they branded him and castrated him so the horse was totally traumatized uh, and we didn't even really realize that now I, I didn't use some of those methods but I did use some of them and actually you know, I loved horses, but I did abusive things just because I didn't know any other way. But looking back, it certainly, uh, you know, I would call it abuse, even though I meant not to be that way. So, so what what have you learned in your in your journey? Not just about not just about better horsemanship, but also about what what the animal can do for can do for a, a person and their and their their soul as much as their as their physical self. Right, absolutely. Well, the, the better we get at working with horses, uh, the better we get at, at doing life. And, uh, you know, we call it feel. Uh, you learn better feel when you communicate with an animal and they respond to you and you find yourself 
communicating with others better. You find yourself uh, kind of monitoring yourself like you would treat a horse. So the people that are around you and particularly, you know, you as a leader, you are treating them more like you would the horse or even in the horse herd. Uh, so it's, it's really more about communication, but uh, just developing a feel. And there's so much healing that we've seen, you know, a, a lifetime of being around this, or at least the last 30 years of being this around this philosophy of training. I have seen people change, uh, you know, the, the arrogant, hard type of, uh, of maybe not necessarily cowboy, but in a lot of what I've been around, but you know, I, I've been around uh, all kinds of horsemanship uh, and I love what you guys do, what I see you're doing. Cause I grew, I grew up riding a Western saddle, but I got into training polo horses early on and, and ended up playing professional polo for 15 years. So, and then I worked with race horses and, uh, and, jumping horses and all, all kinds. So I love the whole spectrum of horsemanship there. And I'm addicted to speed, by the way. I'm not so much at my age now, but I love, <laughs> I love thoroughbreds and I love the speed uh, that they have and, and the stamina. But just getting back to the human side, it, uh, we've just seen, you know, the, the people that are too soft with their horses, uh, they learn to firm up. So it's not just about being kind. It's not about just being soft. It's, being, it's about being as firm as you need to be, yeah. but be as soft as you can be is one of the things we talk about in the, in the book, Think Like a Horse. And so these are some of the little principles. And really, is it is a philosophy more that I teach than a method. So once you learn the philosophy, you can use it uh, to fit your own personality and uh and it really, it, it, it expands everything because when you run into a problem with a horse or a human, you just, you think about the philosophy and, and you kind of go come back to it. So it's a plumb line that you, you know, has really helped me part particularly in my life, but I've just seen it help countless others, everything yeah. from yeah. people who've traumatized to, to uh, good, healthy people. Grant, I, we've got your book here, um, Think Like a Horse. Uh, got a, a lovely uh, testimony from um, Anita Elbers from Harvard Business School on the back. A must read for anyone who seeks to be a leader with accountability, wisdom and empathy. I, I, we've got some beautiful pictures as well from your, your Diamond Cross Ranch in, in Jackson Hole in Wyoming. I think anybody, anybody would like to spend time here. I can see why the horses like it. <laughs> Yeah, we live in a beautiful area and, and we, uh, you know, certainly wouldn't be where we are without our location. That's Freckles, my, my go-to horse there. He's 27, by the way. Uh, but yeah, we, we absolutely love where we live, but we, we love sharing the ranch with people. You know, we don't put a, a gate at the, at the, at the highway and say, keep out. We invite people to come and participate and, and to be a part of the ranch and get to share because we just felt like it was a gift for us and yeah. and uh, and it's a great place to share. We love the Diamond Cross Ranch. Grant, thank you so much for joining me this morning. All the very best with the book and fingers crossed one day we might get ourselves to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. All the best. 
come see us and i uh you're making me hungry with all your what you're eating and drinking there even though it's even though it's four o'clock in the morning here <laughs> you you get yourself some breakfast we'll catch up very soon thanks so much grant Goller, whose book think like a horse is now in all bookshops and uh, online uh, Chris Waller, I'll leave you with the, with, with the final word. A life around horses isn't so bad, is it? It's pretty special. And some of the things you touched on, it, it, it's an amazing what how you can connect with horses and the modern techniques are fantastic. And uh, comes the horse comes first. It's as simple as that.